Welcome to The Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, we're headed to Flanders, and really the port city of Antwerp, to think about the Belgian Pale Ale, a classic hoppy style lost amidst all the IPA fanaticism. To properly explore the style, we're talking to Tommy Arthur, founder and brewer and all-around Belgian fanatic at Lost Abbey Brewing Company in San Diego. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This February, the HA encourages you to reconnect with your love of homebrewing and show your homebrew equipment some special attention by getting it cleaned up and ready to brew. Use promo code CLEAN to receive a free bottle of PBW cleaning tablets when you join or renew your AHA membership in February or while supplies last. Get your free PBW with promo code CLEAN and find February inspiration with craft beer recipes, beer, and food pairing suggestions, and much more by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental today. Once again, that's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental, promo code CLEAN. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. All right, welcome back, everybody, and thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. As always, remember, if you interact with them, let them know that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. Now, as I said in the intro, Belgian pale ale, it's kind of an unusual thing, right? It's a mix of British pale ale style and a little bit of a Belgian character, and it's also kind of a lost and damn near forgotten style. So I figured... It would make some sense to sit down and talk about it and talk with somebody who knows a lot about Belgian beer and kind of a Belgian fanatic. So, Mr. Belgian fanatic, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, guys. It's Tommy Arthur from the Lost Abbey here. Thanks for having me, Drew. Hey, thanks. Even even with the pandemic here, it's been a while since I've had a chance to to, to sit down and talk to you and share a beer. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a weird kind of how do you get out when you're not supposed to be out and lockdowns and try to stay healthy and everybody, uh, you know, it, at least we can still drink beer, you know. Well, and at least you're staying busy because as we were talking in the pre-roll, uh, you're getting ready to open up a new location. Yeah, we just finished uh, a new tasting room in downtown San Diego called East Village. Uh, East Village, San Diego, out the back of Petco Park, uh, five blocks from where the Padres play. Uh, known as The Church by Lost Abbey. It is a tasting room uh, that we built in a historical church. So really exciting. 
and uh, super happy to finally be home on this project. It's been almost three years in the works. Yeah, I like the the creative reuse of a of a disused building. And look, churches are kind of cool anyway from an architectural point of view, so it makes some sense. Yeah, they did a really nice job. They salvaged the building. It fallen into some serious disrepair. They did a great job of, of moving it and reestablishing kind of you know the, the outside gaps and skin. And then we just had to come inside and, and take care of the inside ourselves. And it's been a fun project. Awesome. So let's talk. Uh, the The reason why I convened this meeting of minds today was to be able to talk about Belgian pale ale. Now. Part of the reason why I'm talking about this style is for people who are not from Southern California, there is the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. It's like a lot of other things has been off for the past two years for some unknown reason, but it's coming back this year with a vengeance in late April. And every year they have a bragging rights competition where each of the homebrew clubs brews a beer to a particular style and it gets entered and whoever wins, wins bragging rights. So not very high stakes, but a little bit of pride on the line. And this year's competition is about Belgian pale ales. Tommy being one of the guys down here in uh, Southern California who knows a lot about Belgian ales, I figured we'd drag him online and try and steal some ideas for how to make a better Belgian pale ale. Tommy, tell me, what's your favorite Belgian pale ale out there? Well, there are a ton of them, but um, currently the guys uh, down the street at Ruler Brewing Company in Carlsbad, Raleigh, and his guys are making a pretty good uh, version of it. Uh, it's called, uh, I think it's called Domestique, um, and it's won, uh, it won the San Diego International Beer Fest uh, Best of Show two years ago, and it's just a really nice blonde kind of pale ale sort of beer. Uh, you know, a lot of the classic uh, Deconic and, and uh, Fat Tire kind of style beers have a little bit more color to them, um, but I tend to lean more towards the blonde pale ale kind of stuff. Well, that, that might also be some of your San Diego influence showing. <laughs> you know, it's it's a uh, it's drier beer and hobby beer. It seems yep. to be everywhere. And so you mentioned Deconic uh, and Fat Tire. So this beer style, like, like I said, is a little unusual. It's sort of in that vein of Belgian beers that play off of British styles. And so I'm thinking like, you know, uh, things like the, Sc- the Belgian Scotch ales, for instance, and even Belgian stouts kind of playing off that same idea. There's like this weird little obscure category of beers that do this. <laughs> and the Belgian pale ales being one of them. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's kind of more regional than anything. You know, it's kind of that deconic around Amsterdam or, you know, up, I'm sorry, around, uh, around Antwerp. And it just feels like some of these beers kind of morphed, you know, like you say, from that English tradition. But they, for me, it feels like, it's almost like, you know, West Coast Amber Ale um, meets Belgian yeast kind of thing, you know, where it's kind of, here's all these different ways you can make a beer amber in color. You can go really light on a really dark malt. You can go light, you know, load up the, the Munich malts and things. And there's just a lot of different ways you can attack it. But the goal is always to have a sweeter amber kind of beer and then lean into the Belgian, uh, you know, ilk. Right. And so you mentioned Deconic, yeah, classic, arguably the exemplar of the style. From Deconic Brewery, oddly enough, in Antwerp, and I believe Deconic is now actually owned by Duval. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, once again, chain of ownership being strange things. And Deconic is what I kind of split into two different styles, right? You got your pale ale and then you got your strong pale ale because, of course, Belgium. And so yeah. you, have, you have Deconic, which comes in at a very reasonable 5%. And for a lot of Belgian beers, that's about as baseline as you can get that's like the lowest level of alcohol that you'll you'll find a lot of times in belgian beers. Right, without drinking pills yeah. yeah and yeah to your point it is amber got that wonderful little rocky head it's served in its own special glass of was it a bolique 
I think it's yeah, like, yeah. spicy with hops, but not hoppy like how we think, kind of think of like a, a West Coast Pale Ale or an IPA. Yeah, I mean more more alt beerish, you know, without being cold fermented and kind of that. Again, back to that kind of that, that West. That, I don't. I don't say West Coast amber, just that you know nineteen nineties craft amber kind of you know color color over everything else. Yeah, kind of, kind of writing that line in the in the amber and like the old Red Seal territory, and although not as dark and caramel. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like Saint Stans, Mendocinos, the, you know, things like that. Oh God, there's a beer I haven't had in forever. And, and yeah, well, yeah, yeah, we well, can't have it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good beer. And then also over here in the States, I think the classic example everybody knows that's also in that sort of lower tier would be New Belgium's Fat Tire, which is everywhere or has been everywhere. I think it's you know kind of unfortunately also a victim of modern taste shifts, uh, but a big biscuit bomb. Yeah, and I think I think it was clearly you know meant to emulate the the Deconic style beer. I mean, I don't know that they've ever really explicitly stated that it was you know that, but it just feels like that that's that's the essence of that beer is that it came out of that that region. Again, again spicy hopping and a lot of malt chew to it. Uh, and and when I say a biscuit bomb, I'm not kidding. I mean to me that's if you ever need to teach somebody how how to think of biscuit malt in a beer or an aromatic or any of those kind of that highly roasted but not blackened malts, especially malts. New Belgium's a good example of what you, what sort of character you get, almost that kind of toasted Zweibeck uh, type character. And then there's the other category that I think of all the time, which is sort of the stronger uh, Belgian pale ales. And part of the reason why I started thinking about doing this discussion was when I heard the Belgian pale ale thing, the first thing my brain went to was, you know what I could really use right now? A quack. <laughs> I love quack. Well, I mean, one, it's just fun to say, quack. Yeah. And it's got that stupid, wonderfully impractical glass. The stirrup, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for people who have never seen it, the proper, so to speak, quack glass is something that looks like an English foot glass, right? Except for mm-hmm. in a wooden handle thing. And yeah, the glass comes out of the wooden handle thing, and it just seems like an accident waiting to happen. With an absolutely wonderful, mostly damn well guaranteed apocryphal story about why the glass is the way the glass is, about stagecoach hands and all that sort of fun stuff, stopping off at a tavern. Um, the problem with the story is that the beer radically postdates the owning of a tavern that had all that stuff. So who cares? Good stories, good beer. I mean, the Belgians are lying to us. Who knew? That, that never happens. <laughs> Not, not about the beer. Yeah. Uh, th- this this beer doesn't uh, have coriander in it. Oh wait, ignore that closet that has a full uh, full bag of coriander in it. And so, quack uh, being in that stronger category falls more in line with what I think of like Belgian beer, which is uh, you know that that nice, uh, not quite Belgian session of eight point four percent. Easy, easy peasy. Yeah. yeah, sure, no problem. I'll have fourteen of those and then go drive a stagecoach somewhere. But again, to compare it to uh, still a Flemish beer, but not uh, not around Antwerp. But and to compare it to that that style that we were talking about before with Deconic and Fat Tire, much paler in color, still more color than just something made with pills like Triple, but not not as amber esque as a Deconic or a Fat Tire. And to me, it also carries more of a Belgian yeast note to it. Like like I kind of think of like Deconic and Fat Tires both being slightly spicy from the hops and a little bit of yeast play, but the yeast overall is relatively clean. Quack to me says more, I'm from Belgium. It has a little bit of that sort of almost golden syrup middle to it. 
along with a fluffiness and then the spiciness of the yeast before it fades out. And also a nice hop character to it. So, Tommy, if you had your choice between, say, a Deconic and a Quok, where would you go? You know, it's funny. I, I've always really appreciated the simplicity of Deconic. Um, and I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with, with Quok in so much as it's a little too fruity for my taste. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to choose the Bullock over the Stirrup. There you go. The other thing to keep in mind today, so Quok is from Barry Bostils, which has always made some wonderful things, including that beer that took everybody by storm and then nobody did anything with it, which was a Deus. And Triple Carbonate, which is outstanding. So Barry Bostils, which is now owned, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, by ABI. ABI, yeah. Yeah, they kind of went and bought them too, so there's another, uh, another thing to put away in your bag. Those are the classic examples I can think of. From... Your perspective as a brewer and a beer aficionado, what makes a Belgian pale ale? We had mentioned amber, kind of not sweet, not fruity, if you like, if you don't like the quok. Yeah, I think it's probably going to come down to sort of that, that hallmark of kind of judging things like this would be just how well integrated everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you spoke to the biscuit note that's in New Belgium, and it's very elevated as a, as a note. Um, and it's kind of like they turned the amp up to 11, but... I think in, in my world, if I'm looking at that style, and it's really not even a style as much as it's just kind of an expression of, of certain elements. Um, you know, I want that soft, that soft beer. I want a little bit of malt complexity, but it isn't necessarily all crystal malt complexity. I want a nice, harmonious yeast quality that doesn't go too far to pure Esterland or too much into just diving on, on phenol bombs. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a deft touch that's going on. Well, and of course, the biggest, most important thing that always needs to be said whenever we're talking about a Belgian style ale, dry. Because I think that's that's still one of the biggest sins I think a lot of American brewers do when they're trying to make a, a Belgian influenced ale. A little too much sweetness in the back end. Yeah, I would think that it's that's part partly in that balance sort of that place, but I think it's really important to understand what a sweet beer is without being, you know, super, super dense and cloying and, and what fractions of points mean. I think the, the Germans really understand, you know, tenths of Plato's and how far, you know, two tenths of a Plato swings the beer to being just not, not in the same place. And it's, you know, it's the precision of the, you know, of the attenuation and right where it wants to sit. Right. Again, as, as I had talked about with the yeast, I mean, you want some of that you talked, hey, you want to balance, and you want some of those phenols. You want some of that freeness. But again, with this pale ale style, you don't want it to be overt. You don't want it to be over the top. The yeast strings, despite being Belgian, are genetically similar to a lot of actually more neutral American strains, or what we think of as neutral American strains these days. As with most of, the, most of that stuff, the origins, uh, I think, are uh, British. But again... Relatively soft on the esters and the phenols. For carbonation, I mean, are you kind of looking for something that pops up out of the glass, but not not like a triple, right? No, I'm not. I'm not looking for any elevated because I mean, at some point there's going to be too much carbonic in it. But it wants to be. It wants to be. You know, I think there's there's a lot to be said for a refermentation. Um, you know, you can you can clearly make it at home and, and uh, put some pressure on it and call it a day, but. Um, you know, we've done so much work in the last 15 years to learn how to bottle condition things, and there's just an element in that that really um, takes it to the next level. That's always one of those questions. Hey, you know, what's what's different about carbonation between forced carbonation and, and re-fermentation in the bottle? I am 
obviously forced carbonation, you can dial in whatever carbonation level you want to a point and it's fairly clean, you know, you, and you do get that, that big bite. But when, when we're actually doing something with bottle condition, or if you're tr- still truly lazy and want a keg condition, w- what character do you think changes or what, what do you perceive as the difference after all these years? Well, I think it's probably tied to mouthfeel more than anything. I mean, they always talk about, you know, there's still live yeast in the, in contact with the beer, right? So that's, that's, mm-hmm. you know, gotta be part of the equation, but um, you know, it feels like the bubbles are a little smaller. It feels like they're a little tighter together. It feels just like they, they really provide a, a, a you know, a, a mousse of, you know, sort of a really creamy kind of, uh, you know, head to them and, and some impressive, you know, some really nice lasting waste. Um, there's just something to be said for a really tall, tall stack of foam on a pretty beer. <laughs> I always think of the classic with like a uh, Duval. Although I think uh, if I remember correctly, I think Duval uses uh, Tetra in the beer. So mm-hmm. yeah. they, get, they get a little hop aid. Shall we say? They do, but at the same time, it's, a, it's obviously a, a very important addition relative to the visual acuity. And so they, they've understood that it's not, man, it's not cheating. It's just, they're trying to build back that essence and, you know, six liters, you know, six grams per liter doesn't hurt either. Don't get me wrong. I'm just jealous that they have that available at their level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I remember uh, many a Belgian beer festival uh, standing around with uh, you opening up massive bottles of Duval. So uh, good times. Definitely. So that's that's kind of what we're thinking. And again, in the classic and more Antwerpy type style, you're looking at like around 5%. If you're looking more at the strong uh, Belgian pale ale, then you're kind of amping up to... Eight percent. Let me ask: between those two, what changes do you think a brewery needs to worry about going between five percent and eight percent uh, when trying to make a beer like this? I think a big part of that jump from five to eight is probably tied to: is it all malt, or is it uh, is it a, is there some kind of a uh, you know some sort of a, a sugar quality you know etc. Are you boosting? You know, can you even make the beer have the right level of balance um, if you're not using some kind of you know outside of barley sort of you know, set up sugars for, for for stacking the deck, right? So I think the biggest question mark between a, a standard and an elevated one is what are you doing about your sugar profile and how does that how does that affect your generation? How does that deal with your terminal gravity kind of stuff? Right. So because to your point, if if you're getting all that all that sugar from the barley, even if it's just Pilsner, you know, that extra barley in order to get you up into that eight percent range is going to add so much more additional stuff around the beer, you know, like dextrins and other proteins to, to make the beer feel thicker and heavier. Uh, as opposed to if you add some of that gravity in with sugar, then when the yeast tears through it, it leaves nothing behind it except for ethanol. <laughs> and so you, you end up with a, a crisper, drier feeling beer uh, just because of the increased attenuation. Let's talk, uh, you know, we're talking the sugar there, but let's talk the malt. I mean, we had kind of joked around a little bit about biscuit in, in New Belgium. I'm assuming what we're using, we would we'd probably want to use something like a, a, a Belgian pale ale malt, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the choice that you really that you really can make. Is you know, can you can you as an American brewer get away with it with a, just a conventional standard two row? And if you do, what's the choice behind it to um, develop some of those? you know, deeper notes um, without having to lean into, you know, all of a sudden you're running 20% specialty malts when you want to be at 7%, you know. So the question just becomes is where are you building base, where are you building color, flavor, um, you know, malt aroma, and, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the choices that have to be made. But, uh, you know, you've got to imagine that a lot of 
Belgian brewers are just getting some kind of, you know, European um, best malt kind of thing that's, that's you know, equivalent to our standard Turo. It just, you know, begs the question is, you know, is our, our Turo is, you know, 1.8 to 2 bond. Maybe they're getting something that's 2.4, and therefore for every additional pound you're picking up some stuff and color, and, and it's really just adding that to, to, to subtle base to, to, to build from. Yeah, uh, well, I'm trying to remember what Castle uh, Castle has a like a Belgian pale ale malt that I've used in the past that to me is very very intense. Mm-hmm. If I were going to if I was going to go and use something like that, I would probably mix it with a more discreet malt, shall we say, <laughs> a, a, a little less oomphy type malt uh, to use a term I use a lot that drives people nuts, mm-hmm. just because. Again, like the the ca- uh, the castle one in particular, kind of reminds me of Maris Otter. Somebody uh, kind of pumped the gas a little bit harder on it, you know, just from the that toasty character it carries. Now, if if somebody were to try and use Turo, looking downstream at those specialty malts, you know, you're talking we might have to increase those. But I mean, to start with, we got specialty malts going on in this anyway. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know, bakes you know, gets gets kind of back to this. There's a thousand ways I think you could conceive of an amber-colored beer. You know, we we've seen. You know, you, you can look at the Germanic tradition with Munichs and Viennas, and there's certainly a lot of that in in the Belgian traditions. Um, you know, you walk through brew houses and things, and there's quite a bit of Munich and Viennas on on malt floors or on brew house floors. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a project or a process because I don't typically love Munich malt. Um, for its distinctive character, um, Vienna being a little bit different. Um, but, you know, if you start loading up you know, your base with, you know, 90-10 and you got some Munich in there and all of a sudden you're like, okay, now it's got, it's leaning leaning into, you know, alt beer land and is that what you really want or is this a hybrid? You know, it used to be an alt beer, but now it's a Belgian pale ale or, you know, what what is your, your thinking and your mentality in that regard? So for me, I would, I would definitely be looking to build color. Um, and depth. What choice of malts would I use outside of Munich and Vienna? For me personally. So when you when you're talking, you perceive a difference between Munich and Vienna. Can you describe what you're perceiving? I think Munich comes off as being a little nuttier, and I think Vienna's a little fruitier. If I had to kind of leave, leave it to the to the simplistic, that's kind of how I, I perceive them. When I think of them, I always think of Munich as being chewier, Vienna being a little bit drier, toastier. It's funny that we're both talking perceptions, and but we're doing along different axes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. those are, to be very clear, those are two malts we just do not use a lot of. So it's a personal preference. So if you're trying to get that amber color, then, and you're eschewing heavy doses of Munich or, or Vienna, which I think is a lot of people's sort of first go-to, and I think it also stands to say that we're also probably not wanting to load up on any sort of crystals because crystals in a lot of ways, yeah, they'll give you the color, but then they really impact your flavor. If you're looking at this, I wonder, are you assuming that, that if you're trying to make a a Belgian pale ale, like a lot of Belgian brewers would, it would be a Munich or Vienna mix. Yeah. I would think that it's going to lean into lots of stuff that are under 20, you know, 20 logo bond. Um, You know, maybe, maybe higher. I just don't see it. You know, for for my purposes, you can attack it two ways. There is all of those different uh, caramels that you know land in the eight to seventeen yep. kind of range, and, and you can probably judiciously build them into something um, and, and get a get a consistent base from that without getting too much more texture. Um, mm-hmm. The other option is to go much higher in color, so something 70, 80, 120, 
and drop a fractional piece in there. I don't know, it probably would only take one or two percent to color the beer to the level you want. And I don't know that you pick up all of the pure kind of sort of uh, darker, you know, I'm not going to say darker roast qualities, but certainly the darker malt aromas that come from, you know, you make a, a red ale with 10 or 20% ADL, mm-hmm. and it's going to have a lot of that, that caramel fraction. In it. It's going to have a lot of that. Uh, I got, you know, I got malted, stewed, and, and killed off, and it's a different texture. But if you can sort of build back color from a really high, uh, you know, a higher Lovobond uh, crystal without using a ton of it, it, it can get you some depth of color. Um, you know, it'd be akin to kind of making like an Irish red ale and, you know, building your base from Truro, but then using, dropping, uh, you know, roasted barley in there to get that red hue, but not doing it at such a level that you get stout, you know, stout intensities of, of uh, roasts and coffees and things like that. And to that point, though, I mean, I think for like a Belgian pale ale, like that or uh, what was the uh, uh, like Red X and mm-hmm. Cara Red. I mean, those those would all get you the color, but I think you'd be missing something on the malt uh, the malt profile. Yeah, it's it's just kind of you know. Then you you know we did chat sugars. You know, are these you know is this a, a sense of, of Belgian? You know, candy glug because they have they have you know liquid sugars that are dark in color. And are you, you know, are you gaining color from that? You know, you go back in time and you say, okay, these were regional beers. You know, were you getting color from a copper kettle with a gas flame, and therefore you had you know caramelization fractions? Are you going to try to look at you know superheating the bottom of the kettle and things like you know? There's technique that isn't necessarily malt forward that can be used to add color that uh, you know might be might be part of the thinking outside of the conventional sort of brew, you know, brew recipe. Well, and, and to that point, like, I think you could use even some of the, like the Belgian candy syrups, or even if we're going to assume that we got some British influence with the style, which I think is unquestionable, then it probably would not even be out of place to use like a brewer's invert. Right. And you just, you know, you, you walk through enough brewery in Belgium, you start to see things like that. So, you know, I think it's fair to assume or to at least announce that, that they might not be a, a highly malted color, you know, sort of game. Well, I still remember walking through our wall and watching the brewers pick up giant sacks of just beet sugar mm-hmm. uh, and, and adding that in. I was like, oh, okay. So don't have to worry so much. That's good no, to know. No, exactly. <laughs> now, if only I can make something like a Norval. Now, it is a pale ale. And that obviously means hops, but not hops in the way that, that that you or I would use hops here on the West Coast. If you were trying to go for that Belgian pale ale hoppy characteristic, which again, to, to my mind, is usually spicy, slightly bitter, but not not over the top bitterness. Yeah. Yeah. What what would you go for? We, we love using Magnum to bitter a lot of our Belgian beers, uh, just as a very clean, uh, try to keep a lot of that vegetal to a very low level. I'm enamored when it comes to some of these beers with Tetanang. I really like that's, that's, that's spicy quality you speak of. Um, you know, sauce is nice too. And I guess you, know, you start to look at some of the old writings and stuff, and you're probably talking about some Slovakian and Styrian influence. So there's a lot in there, but I, you know, is there room for Cascade in this beer? I, I don't know. You know, it's, it just depends upon how, how good you are. Um, you know, one of the funniest things that I learned a long time ago was that Coors Light is bittered with Chinook, which makes makes no sense in, in, in the world. But if you can hide it, you know, then you can then it can be done, right? So it doesn't mean you can't do things. It just means how well can you how well can you mask what what you did? And uh, if you have a a great reason to use Chinook in this beer, then and it doesn't taste like a Chinook pale ale, then 
and you've done your job. Now, to be fair, in cores, they're probably using a fractional amount of Chinook compared to what we would use. But yeah, I mean, a twelve percent alpha, you know, in a, in a hundred barrel batch or two hundred barrel batch, it's yeah, it's likely five pounds. You know, it, it, a little bit goes a long way. But it is interesting to think that that's a that is an you know, it's an adjunct or it's an ingredient that normally you would think would have no place in light lager, and then all of a sudden it's being used at a very high level. Listeners will know I'm I'm staunchly in the Magnum bittering crew for life because almost everything I brew is either bittered with Magnum or Warrior. Mm-hmm. I love steering golding in, in in Belgian ales, and I'm getting ready to play around with a lot of the the newer steering varieties, all those hops from Slovenia, if for no other reason than the fact that they gave them all really kind of badass names like Styrian Dragon mm-hmm. and Styrian Wolf. If you were looking at structuring the hops, I mean, we're probably talking something very traditional, old school type type hopping in the kettle right yeah i would think you'd be going like you know is this a 60 minute or 90 minute boil but you're talking about you know one at one at that start of boil and, and you know how much it flame out or you know 15 minutes before but you're really you're really just trying to kiss it in both in both the front end of the beer and the back end like, i can't see it being heavy you know you're not you're not going 60 minute ipa so you're not dropping a hop in every every minute you know? yeah no no throwing the dice and randomly choosing a hop variety to go in the beer please yeah, it only works in double ipas and you had mentioned, well, actually, so if we're thinking about five percent beer, what would what would you guess in terms of the IBU? Somewhere right, like around thirty. I wasn't thinking even that high. I was thinking twenty two, twenty five. I don't know. It, it really just depends upon the perception of bitterness. You know, are you talking two Plato finish? You're talking a buck four. You know, what kind of driving? You know, yeast quality do you have? You pick up a lot of phenol now. All of a sudden, you've got spicy phenol, spicy hops. You know, perception of, of bitterness could be quite varied, but you know, I would feel like a beer, you know, in my world would want to land at 1.6, 1.7 Plato terminal gravity, and at that point, I could probably pull off 22 BUs. And of course, we haven't talked about what water looks like, but uh, mm-hmm. the softer the better is likely, just to keep them all, you know, really enhanced. Right, and so uh, just to translate for homebrewers out there, you're looking at final gravity of around 1006, 1007. In that plate range. Yeah, and you're talking, you're probably starting at what, 1040, you know, 1042. I don't know, I'd get my calculator out, but you talk about some very, you know, simple, low, and just a, a, you know, a fully fermented beer, something in the 90, 92% kind of range, you know. And that's one of those ones that always kind of I find screwy when trying to calculate how to, you know, like what my original gravity is and all that should be like just intuitively. Because mm-hmm. I think my brain is set so much on a schedule of like what it looks like when you make an American beer or, or British style beer. Uh, when you go to Belgian beers, it gets really screwball because your gravities are much, much lower from higher alcohol. Yeah. And much, yeah, that's that you know, near, near to non residual sugar, right? Yeah. All right. So again, we're talking somewhere in that 20 to 25, maybe 30 at the maximum, uh, particularly if you're going higher in gravity or you have more malt perception. You had mentioned water. You're you're favoring the idea of going softer water or maybe even like uh, water with just a, a kick up on, on the chloride. Yeah, I mean, we, we've run everything pretty much on the lager kind of lager profile here. So we just call it, you know, what would amount to be softer you know, towards, it would skew towards being more, you know, likely for, for lagers. But you're talking about a regional style and who knows what the water is in Antwerp, but you know, it's it could come from a well. It could be all kinds of different stuff. But just, I think ultimately, it really bears bears repeating that whatever you're trying to achieve needs to be sort of a very rock solid sense of how you want to get there. If you want to use some kind of harder water with a minerality because you want that in the flavor profile, 
that's fine, but how are you going to deal with it against all of your ingredients? Well, and particularly because I think if you went harder or, you know, more sulfate for instance, then you start to push more into British territory and you start to become more like a bitter or pale, uh, British pale ale. Uh-huh. It is a balancing act. And I do kind of agree with you. I think you'd want to, I mean, actually, truthfully, for a lot of Belgian beers, their water is kind of soft anyway, uh-huh. or, you know, a fairly low mineral load with one or two exceptions and sometimes not always for the best. Right. That's malt, that's hops, that's water. We've talked a little bit about yeast and kind of alluding to the fact that usually these are not, I mean, if you go and you look, you've got what White Labs has their Antwerp ale, right, which is Taconic. Uh, y yeast has the Schlade, uh, Schlade Belgian ale, which is also Taconic. Um, and then I think Omega has, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Omega has Belgian ale DK, which I'm guessing is Taconic. Taconic. And actually of those three, the only one that's available to homebrewers on the regular right now seems to be the Omega. Both the White Labs and the uh, Y Yeast are both either private collection or, for instance, with White Labs, it's in the vault. And so you got to get 150 other people to buy uh, in order to get it done. But these strains are all sort of softer in terms of their yeast expression. They're more related to something like like Y Yeast 1272, for instance, American Ale 2, which I think is Anchor's Ale Strain. But they're, they're softer. They're not huge phenol and ester producers, which kind of feels like to me that if as long as you actually sort of restrained that production you could get away with a lot of different yeast strains in this not just a antwerp specific yeast strain yeah and i think you know i've been sort of sitting on this the whole time if i was brewing at home and i was trying to 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 kind of play around with what's possible given that those things don't come out of the vault all the time um you know this is where i probably would blend two together to kind of try to push one one portion of the yeast into neutral land. So, you know, you take Cal Ale and, and you grab something that's either free, um, you know, or if it's, you know, spicy. Our, our house yeast is West Mala, um, which sets off a lot of phenols. Um, but what you try to do is just not have that, you know, that, that level of extra. And one of the, the ways to do that is to have a fractional component, you know, so that you're getting the, the workhorse from neutral and then you're just sort of kissing it in the end. Um, and, I think that's a really good way to do it. Obviously, it makes it tough in a commercial environment because you start repitching, and the repitching rates change relative to dominance of yeast and, and who, you know, and which one takes over. But that being said, you know, you go to the, the store, you buy five, you know, a five-gallon batch or ten-gallon batch of ingredients. And you got, you know, one vial of this and one vial of that, and maybe you grow it up and you pitch seventy-thirty or sixty-forty or you know, easily fifty-fifty. But there might be a way to really tailor that that kind of profile to. Um, you know, trying something that's not just lock, stock, and single off the dock. Right, and that's not too dissimilar to what they've talked about in the past. So uh, with the dry yeast, of course, you know, we're we're starting to see some renaissance of uh, dry yeast and actually talking to a lot of pro brewers recently who have switched over to using dry yeast almost exclusively. And when they started pushing BE-134, I think that's the right number, uh, they were talking, oh, if you really want to get a true Belgian profile, you pitch two packs of T58 and one pack of BE-134, and that will give you the right sort of blend of esters and phenols in order to really push it. So, Do you know what those base, what those base are, what, the, what, the, what kind of drag together that is? I, I don't, actually. Uh, that, that came straight from their, uh, their rep's mouth, though. And they're like, oh, no, here, this is what you do. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But I do think that uh, like doing co-pitches like what you're talking about is a underutilized technique. 
that sounds like a, a pretty good plan there. If you can't get your hands on an Antwerp strain, go find your favorite Belgian strain that you do actually have available to you and sort of step on it a little bit and sort of tamp down its uh, characters by using a very neutral strain, like a 001 in there. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then fermentation, I mean, this is a Belgian beer, so although... Again, don't do what a lot of homebrewers do, which is just decide that, oh, hey, it's Belgian. I don't have to do any temperature control. <laughs> and I, guarantee you that, I guarantee you that the giant tanks at the Conic are uh, temperature controlled and have a very, very detailed profile. Oh, yeah. Well, and this would be a place where I'd play around with what I usually do with Belgian beers, which is pitch at a a nice cool temperature, so like a 63, 64, you know, because again, home brewers, much smaller, much smaller volume, less uh, hydrostatic pressure on the column. Uh, so 63, 64, and then let it come up after it's sort of established the fermentation. So that way, again, you know, driving down some character formation, but also avoiding the dreaded fusel alcohols. Yeah, I mean, they got to also remember that this is a beer that might ferment out in 36 hours if you know, it, really, if it really got going hot. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Kind of low and slow, and let it kind of move up. But it should, you know, this thing should ferment out in five days. You know, at, you know if, if you're pitching healthy yeast and you're starting at ten forty, I don't see any reason why it's going to kind of lag. Uh, you know, kind of take take too long to get home on it. There you go. I did want to uh, break down one thing because you talked about uh, American hops in in the beer and like what you're trying to do, and of course that makes me think of Dua Me, uh, which yeah. was the. Is, Saison DuPont with American hops that uh, that you and Olivier worked on. So if you were thinking about, hey, I want to make an American-influenced Belgian pale ale, where do you think you would go with, uh, with the hops, for instance? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think I'd have to s- sort of lean into some of the more interesting fruity ones mm-hmm. um, because, you know, while Mosaic is nice and Simcoe is great, um, you know, they carry a, a, it's not quite a black pepper and, and, and something note, but they're, they're really, they're American spicy. So it's kind of, you know, the goal would be is if you wanted to go Americana here and kind of, you know, lean back into our world and use new world hops, but at the same time, you'd want it to have that old world kind of drinkability sensibility. Um, I would think something kind of more like that new world strata that's kind of really fruity, but not tiny. Um, and you could play play from there. I don't know. There's probably a few other things out in, in the universe that I'm not, uh, you know, we're not using a ton of, but nothing new in Mexico. I don't think Sabro is going to give you, I don't think you really want coconut and, and shea butter and lotion. Uh, I think, you, you know, you're looking for something a little bit more, you know, and, and likely tropical. Um, but, but again, that's now, now what is your use choice and what's your plan for dealing with an ester compound or a level of esters? that are not uh, yeast-based. Well, and I think to that point, if you were going for the fruitier hops or some of the more American hops, you'd have to do that that classic trick of doing something to pull down some of those yeast characters so that you don't get a clash, or with your point about the fruitier hops, you don't get an over-amplification. Yeah, and I mean, you could, you know, you want to make an argument, okay, you could use Willamette Creek. It's a styrian-based. That, that's, that's not what you're asking. You're asking me, what, what's something that's kind of fun and interesting and new that would get you home? And, and there's a lot of other stuff, but, uh, you know, there's, I, I think I'm, I, I probably lean more into the classicalness of the, the regionality of it. And I'm probably trying to emulate something from there that's fresh, fresher and with a little bit brighter character and, and not necessarily looking to overly Americana the thing, you know, 
to death. Leave your Citra Mosaic Simcoe Galaxy at home. Yeah, it's, it's, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I, I will say I'm actually impressed now with with the variety of hops that we have available to us today, how many of those hops actually do work well with Belgian yeast, as opposed to what we had in the past, like back when it was, you know, your, your big C's, right. And all those big C's always clashed with everything that you could do, like with a Belgian strain. So it is interesting to see. Um, All right. So any other thoughts or tips that you want to give people about what to think about with a Belgian pale ale? I think you've got to lean into the that less is more. I mean, it's got to be, you know, there's there's a reason these beers aren't aren't brewed everywhere, and there's a reason that they're not, you know, on every menu they they are. I think I think there's a, a lot of uh, finesse that goes into these, and while it's easy to uh, you know see what a recipe might look like, what is the skillful execution? Uh, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, the beer that's going to win, you know, the cup is going to have. Um, just you know, it's going to hit a lot of the hallmarks. It's going to have a great fresh yeast quality. It's going to have a nice level of hopping that doesn't get too you know too over the top. The malt's going to finish nicely, and it's going to it's going to burp good, and it's going to smell right. And it's just you know you're, you're really talking about hitting a lot of a lot of cylinders here, and not overdoing any one of them. It's almost the, the the dreaded word of the podcast is balance. Yeah. I forbid brewers from using that, but in a lot of ways, that is some of what we're talking about here. We could just go with harmony. Yeah. Symphonic, yes. A symphony of ingredients. Harmony and restraint. Uh-huh. Uh, and restraint being something that a lot of American brewers and home brewers have trouble with. Zero, zero level one. <laughs> All right. Well, Tommy, I, I want to say thank you so much for taking, uh, taking time here on a Friday to come talk with me. But again, less is more. Keep your hands off the gas and pray that you make a good beer. Never hurts to pray. <laughs> Don't forget, coming soon. Uh, do you know when uh, when it will open? Uh, church is currently open serving beer. The tasting room portion is uh, beer only right now, and in the next month, hopefully middle of March, we'll be up serving food full-time. There you go. So in the meanwhile, if you need to stop and think about how to make a Belgian pale ale, you can always go to church. Contemplate. Contemplate how to make beer. Right? <laughs> right. Have, have yourself a nice glass of beer and contemplate what you want to make. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at the Belgian Pale Ale in all of its splendor. We hope that you give this classic Vontorp, or its stronger cousin, a shot and enjoy the character mix of Pale Ale and Belgian beer. Got a recipe that you love? Let us know. Did we forget something? Let us know. Got a secret? Let me know. I want to win. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the AHA Amazon or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still being decided. But now, until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. 
seltzer sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to 5 gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. 